Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Guys, the last number of weeks I've been uh, kind of teaching on John the Baptist and pulling uh, our messaging out of Matthew chapter 3, looking at his message of repentance and how it ties in with his baptism and talking a, a little bit about baptism. And uh, honestly, I was doing a lot of study on baptism because I had planned on kind of continuing to preach on that in this vein. And uh, during my course of study, it was interesting to me that there's a particular story that kept kind of popping up in commentaries and different places that uh, I was reading. And it was the story of Naaman the leper. And it's this Old Testament story of this guy that goes and gets cleansed in the Jordan River. And it was kind of surprising to me that this was associated with baptism because there's certainly foreshadowing there. There's parallels that we're going to dig into today. Um, But it's not necessarily Christian baptism that Naaman experienced. There's some themes in there maybe that you could connect and uh, maybe a long stretch to make it work. Um, But I was just surprised when I was uh, coming across that. And honestly, in my surprise, I I came back to this story in 2 Kings and was just stirred. And I kept kind of trying to file it away and continue on in the thematic uh, kind of style of messaging that we've been in in Matthew chapter 3 because I don't feel like we're finished there and talking about bearing fruit with keeping with repentance. I want to talk about what it means to be baptized with fire that John alluded to. Um, but I feel like the Holy Spirit kind of uh, told me to pause this week and really center in on this uh, character of Naaman. And I, I preached on Naaman, uh, I want to say not too long ago. So I looked up my notes and it was like four and a half years ago. So I think it's okay if I revisit him <laughs> again now. Um, but it's just something that's uh, interesting to me. And this is, this is how you know uh, it was the Lord and the Holy Spirit I have a title for my message this morning, and I never title my messages. And so if you're taking notes and if you want to write something down, I I titled this message, What Do You Have to Lose? And uh, I love the kind of language there. You guys are probably familiar with that phrase, what do you have to lose? Um, I remember uh, particularly when I was trying to woo Kelly and uh, was trying to court her and talk to her. Uh, I had mild success for a moment, and then uh, it was this dwindling spiral of where it just seemed like nothing was ever going to happen. I remember uh, sitting with Adam and uh, some guys that were at our house. We all kind of lived together, and we were watching this movie, and I was talking about, like, I'm going to ask Kelly to go to this concert that's coming up in a couple months, and I had made up this kind of decision. It's like, she's not really talking to me. It might as well just kind of go all in and and see what happens. And then from that moment on, she stopped talking to me (laughs) as soon as I made up my mind. I mean, seriously, it was weird. And I was like, she stopped responding to my messages. And uh, it just was like giving clear signals that maybe this isn't, maybe she's not interested anymore. I think that's kind of like a signal girls typically give, like, you stop talking to the person that is interested in you. Maybe you should take that as a, as a no. Well, long story short, I wound up winning some con- concert tickets 
just out of the blue to this sold-out concert. And uh, I remember Adam, like, distinctly, uh, distinctly, not distinctly, distinctly telling me that he would punch me in the face if I didn't ask Kelly to go to this concert. Because <laughs> I think he thought I was going to ask him at first. <laughs> and uh, I did, and uh, we're married now. We have kids. It's great. It worked out. It's a great story. I'll give you, I'll give you, the, I'll give you the, the full story some other time. It's better than that. I kind of painted Kelly in a bad light. She wasn't just ignoring me to, to ignore me, but I was kind of weird. I don't blame her. But it came to this place where it was really, what do I have to lose? Because, uh, you know, she wasn't going to not talk to me more than she already wasn't. If There were a lot of double negatives in that sentence. I don't really know if that computed. But there was really nothing that I had to lose at that point other than any ounce of pride that I had already lost. So uh, it worked out. She said yes. And in, seriously, the entire time that I was sitting there trying to, like, psych myself up to ask her, I had walked through every scenario of my response of what I was going to say when I got rejected, except for I never played through the scenario of what she would actually, what would actually happen if she said yes. And I almost fell out of my chair there at higher grounds. Um, it, was, it was a great situation, but <laughs> um, it was really a, what do you have to lose here? Uh, let's just go all in. Let's just, uh, let's just give it a go and see what happens. And uh, it's been good. God's been good, and God's been gracious there. And Kelly's a saint, so please don't take that as a, uh, she was uh, somehow the bad person in that, uh, that scenario. You guys know that. I don't know why I have to explain that. But the story of Naaman that we're going to get to today is very much a similar, uh, what do you have to lose kind of situation. And uh, there's actually two stories that we're going to kind of highlight this morning. And the first one is actually found in the Gospels, and it's Jesus encountering a blind man. And uh, it's actually found in John chapter 9. So if you guys want to turn with me there, these stories both kind of have similarities. Both of these people were instructed to go and wash, and their malady was healed. And they found restoration. Um, they initially, though, had very different responses to this instruction to go and cleanse themselves, to go and wash. But in John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, it says, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. This is talking about Jesus. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Guys, we could spend like four weeks on a sermon series on that just chunk of scripture there because there's so much to unpack in good theology uh, that is found in those, but uh, I'm going to gloss over it this morning to get to our main point, but dig into that. I encourage you. Beginning in verse four, it says, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spits on the ground made some mud with saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent to the man. And so the man went and washed and came home seeing. So I really need a volunteer for this next part of the sermon. Illustration here. No? Nobody was quick to throw up their hands <laughs> for that. They, they're like, he's really not going to do that, is he? 
But could you imagine the scene around Jesus here? This guy who can't see, but he can certainly hear. And, and there's like a distinctive sound. Somebody just made it there just a second ago. And Jesus like hawks this loogie into the dirt. It's gross. It's disgusting, right? And he's like, and just, just goes for it, right? And spits into the ground and makes mud. Like, this is weird, Jesus, right? If I was one of his disciples, I'd be like stopping him. I was like, Jesus, calm down. Like, what is going on here? And he makes this mud out of his own spit and just shoves it in the guy's face. Imagine being the guy blind, like hearing what's going on, knowing that. <laughs> what in the world? They, they were an easily offended culture, just so you guys know that. It wasn't like this was just like a, a common practice uh, for healers in the day. I think Jesus was intentionally trying to push this guy to the edge. I think there was some intentionality behind what Jesus was doing because we know he could have just touched him and he could have seen. He could have just spoken words. He healed other people different ways uh, and, and they were able to see. But Jesus here is making a demonstration and teaching something in this whole thing, in this story, when he spits in the mud, puts it on the guy's eyes, and then he still can't see. Now he just like doubly can't see. And then Jesus doesn't even like lead him by the hand. He just says, go and wash. It's like, I can't see. <laughs> he goes and washes, but he finds his healing. Me, if I was the blind man here, would have had some real objections to Jesus' methods here. And I think the same is true for a lot of us, that we don't really like the process that Jesus takes us through sometimes. And we question his goodness. And we question whether or not he really knows what he's doing. I remember being a teenager just ticked off at God because the girl that I thought was going to be my wife broke up with me. Thank God he knew better than me, right? But sometimes he brings us through uh, painful processes. And he brings us through difficult and frustrating situations, does he not? Sometimes he does things in what we would consider a backwards manner. Like he's seriously putting mud on this blind guy's eyes. Like if he couldn't see before, he certainly can't see now. I know that the Lord asked me to sell our house at probably the most inopportune time in this whole housing market thing. Why? I, I don't know yet. I know that uh, Adam and Shelby, you guys got called to the mission field right before a national, uh, national, it was just confined here, no, international pandemic. And that, that's left like, God, do you really know what you're doing? <laughs> does, every, does anybody ever feel like that? I understand. It's okay to feel like that. That's pretty natural. It's a bad thing to stay in that place. <laughs> and it's a bad thing to let that questioning turn into doubt. But the reality of it is, I, I believe most of us have been there. Most of us have walked a life where it seems like, God, you really are, are doing things in a weird manner. And I'm not really comfortable with it. Now, the problem is when we become offended with God for doing something differently than we expected him to do it. And I am coming to learn. I'm not there yet, but I think it's a mark of spiritual maturity to be okay when God deviates from your plan. 
<laughs> it's an important thing that we've got to learn because I have plans, I have thoughts, and I have these kind of things in my mind exactly of how God is supposed to do what I want him to do. And can you guys guess how many times it happens that way? Not very often. And so how often do we disagree with the way the Lord is doing things in our lives? Pretty often. Sometimes the Lord lets us do things that don't make sense from our perspective. And it's a challenge to have an unoffended heart sometimes, but it demonstrates faith and trust when we walk in obedience, even if we don't see the immediately positive outcome. That's what I love about this man that was born blind. He could have got offended with Jesus. He could have said, what in the name of who do you think you are? What are you doing? <laughs> you just spit on me. <laughs> he didn't because I don't think he had a lot to lose. I think he was sitting there thinking, why not? <laughs> what, what do I have to lose here? Just because the Lord isn't doing something the way you think he should doesn't mean he's not doing something good. And I believe we need to be careful to be unoffended with the process. We need to guard ourselves against pride. Because I believe pride is just the notion of us thinking that we know better than God. And that's a difficult one for me. Because sometimes I... I have plans and I have thoughts and I have strategies. And God likes to come in and just do things wildly different than I anticipated. But they're always better than I would have planned. So with that as a backdrop, with that as a framework, we're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 16 here. It's kind of a, a longer narrative, so please bear with me. But we're going to just look at some things very quickly today. Now Naaman... The commander of the army of the king of Syria was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. We're going to come back to this, but I think it's important for me to make note of this right now. We're talking about an enemy of Israel. We're talking about an enemy of God's people here. Syria, uh, if, you're, if you're familiar with kind of what was taking place was definitely uh, Israel's enemy. They're invading them. They're attacking them. It's actually believed uh, there's uh, common lore that Naaman, uh, Jewish folklore and legend would have it, that Naaman was the one that fired the arrow that killed King Ahab um, in battle. And so that's extra biblical, <laughs> just to be clear. We don't, uh, we don't know for sure if that happens, but that ha that's how it goes down in Jewish tradition. And so, uh, but I, I, I think this is so interesting because it says, Scripture says that the Lord used Naaman, that the Lord is the one that had given victory to Naaman, who is a pagan Gentile here. Uh, it says the Lord used him uh, to give victory to Syria, not to his own people, not to Israel, but to Syria. And so when I'm looking at that, when I'm reading this, God will use things that we think he shouldn't use. And in this case, he was bringing correction against his people. 
and he was disciplining his people with a completely, uh, with a completely outside character from the covenant that he had made with them. And it's just, just fascinating as we think about that. But if we pick up in verse 2, it says, The Syrians had gone out on raids and brought back a captive young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's, li- uh, Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus says this girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. Little tidbit of information here, uh, the way that they calculate that in in that day and era would be the equivalent of $1.2 million. And this was in 1999, so account for inflation of the difference between $1.2 million and 99. It was a filthy, absurd amount of money that he's taking. And he brings this letter to the king of Israel, which says, Now be advised when this letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman my servant to you that you may heal him of his leprosy. In verse 7 it says, And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So in the the mind of the king of Israel... He receives this general from an opposing nation, right, that comes bearing this letter from this other king that has really kind of been going to town and has been a a pretty, like, big thorn in the side of Israel, if you want to think of it that way. Uh, This general comes in with a letter from this opposing king asking him to heal him of his leprosy. And so the king of Israel naturally thinks, like, this is some kind of dirty trick. Like, this is crazy, right? This is ridiculous. He, he's, he knows that I can't cure this man of leprosy. And so he's just trying to pick a fight. He's trying to find an excuse to come and fight with us. And that's his mentality. That's his thought process. In verse 9, though, it says that Naaman went with... Oh, so verse 8. I skipped a verse. Verse 8, so it was when Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes... He sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. And this is, this is something that the Lord spoke to me this morning. Um, it's not technically in my notes, but what we see here is a man with a real need, with real brokenness and real problems going first to a political king trying to find his healing when he needed to go see a prophet. And I believe that this is representative of of our culture today that places a heavier emphasis on what politics and and people might be able to do for them rather than what the word of the Lord can do. And I I think that this could be a strong rebuke for many of us Christians that place too much trust in a political sphere rather than a prophetic one. And I'm not saying politics isn't important. I'm not saying anything like that, but I really feel strongly here um, but the Lord was highlighting that to me, and I, I just want to emphasize it here. Because the instruction from the slave girl was never go see the king of Israel. Was never go, uh, never go there. He said, she initially said, go see the prophet who isn't even in Israel at the time. He's in Samaria. Go see him. Because there's answers there. And I, I just want to encourage you, there are not the answers that the world needs found in a broken political system. 
It's going to only be found in the word and the moving of the Lord. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariot, and he stood at the door of Elijah's house. And Elijah sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abinar and the Farfar, far, far, Farpar, Farpar, I can read. Sorry, these... I don't say these words very often. And the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you have not done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all of his aides, and came and stood before him and said, Indeed, now I know there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that it's alive and active and it's still speaking to us today. Here, thousands of years later, and we're asking that what you're speaking and what you're doing would be so clear this morning. I pray for responsive hearts, tender towards your work. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first character that uh, we kind of are introduced into this cold dialogue is Naaman, right? And I've already kind of, I've already kind of given a good definition of the fact that he was an enemy to the people of God. He was an enemy to God, but was being used by him to bring correction and discipline. He was a commander of the army of Syria, a pagan general, a mighty man of valor. Legend goes down about this guy and his exploits, and it's pretty interesting. One of, one of the foremost ones being that he's actually the one that fired the arrow that killed King Ahab. There's other people that are mentioned to be men of great valor and nobility, the one that comes to my mind immediately is Gideon, but it's never, it's never in Scripture attributed to another Gentile other than this Naaman, the commander of the armies of Syria. But with all of his success, has climbed the rung of the military ladder, is second to the king of Syria, Right? pretty successful dude. I'd give him thumbs up. They're carrying off raids, mighty man of valor, and it's because the Lord is using him on his life. It says he was yet a leper. You can be as successful as you want to be. That doesn't make sense. Everybody wants to be successful. Not everybody's as successful as they want to be. That's a lie. Uh, <laughs> what I was trying to say is you can be wildly successful and still be broken. Some, in fact, some of the most successful people by the world's definition are some of the most broken that I know. What we were looking at here was a big issue. 
Admittedly, it wasn't as big of an issue if he would have been Jewish. So then he would have been just completely cut off from everything in all society being a leper. But it, it was still a big deal. Uh, I want to read this about ancient leprosy, and I, I think you'll find this fascinating. It's, it's fairly graphic, so please bear with me. But it, it describes ancient leprosy as beginning with small red spots on the skin. But before long, those spots get bigger and bigger and bigger, and they start to turn white. And it's got this like shiny, scaly appearance on it. It's pretty gross. <laughs> I'm not going to put pictures up on the screen. But uh, soon those spots would spread to the whole body. Your hair would begin to fall out. I don't have leprosy. Uh, I just don't have hair. <laughs> It'd start from the hair. <laughs> and, and then it would move to your eyebrows. They would begin to fall out. And things would get worse and worse. And your fingernails and your toenails would become loose. And they would just fall out. And they'd, they'd, be, they'd be missing start to rot, and the fingers and the joints and the toes would begin to rot and fall off piece by piece, and your gums would begin to shrink to where they couldn't hold teeth anymore, and they would all begin to fall out. And it would, uh, it would even go away and start eating away at your face, and you literally start eating away at your nose and the palate, and then your eyes would be one of the last things to eventually rot to the place where you could not sustain yourself and eat, and you'd be wasting away to death. Ancient leprosy was a pretty graphic condition. And there was nothing that could be done for leprosy in the ancient world. And there was nothing that Naaman could do for his condition, regardless of all of the success that he had, regardless of all the exploits and the victories that he had. There was nothing that he could do to save himself. And this is why leprosy and, and, and the sinful nature of man are often shown in parallel. It's actually often used symbolically to describe the sinful condition of mankind. This is what I wrote, that there are strong parallels of Naaman's leprosy and the sinful condition of all mankind. Leprosy is often utilized as a picture of sin because it was so visible and it involved the decay and the corruption of the body. It became this symbol of sinfulness. You see, sin corrupts spiritually in the same way that leprosy corrupts physically. In the same way that Naaman could do nothing about his physical condition, I believe that mankind as sinners could do nothing for our spiritual condition. But that's where we see the grace and the wonderful work of God enter in. In Romans 5, chapter 8, it says, But God demonstrates his own love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I love this because it's not just Jesus telling us that he loves you. He's not just saying, hey, Lucas, man, I really love you, bro. He says, I'm going to demonstrate it for you by dying on a cross, by paying a price higher than anything that could be paid. I'm going to demonstrate my love for you before you ever do a thing for me, before you clean up your act, before you, before you get sober, before you stop sleeping around, before you stop being a horrible person that just beats up little kids. Yeah. It was, a number of, it was a number of months ago I was preaching a message talking about how uh, I was sharing, like, God can save anybody. And 
or, or something like that. And I was mentioning parts of my testimony. It was like, God can save you and deliver you from uh, worshiping Satan and, uh, you know, rebellion and all this stuff that I had struggled with and I had mentioned. Uh, like, he can save you even if you're selling crack to kindergartners or something like that. And Adam came up to me after the service, like, you should probably clarify that you never sold crack to <laughs> kindergartners because it really comes across that way. But the reality of it is, there's nothing that Naaman can do for his condition in the same way that us as human beings can do nothing for our spiritual condition. Because it, the gospel message, who Jesus is, it all revolves around what he did for us, not what we can do for him. This is one of the things that the majority of world religions hold in common. It's about what can you do to get to God. It's, it's how do you, what, what, what kind of good deed can you do to reach enlightenment, to reach nirvana, or, or how, how perfectly can you follow the Quran so you, can, so you can get to paradise someday? Can your good deeds outweigh your bad? And, and, and the beauty of Christianity, the beauty of the gospel is it's not about what good can we do to get to heaven? What good can we do to get to Jesus? It was about God looking down upon his creation, looking down upon those who, who he loves. And it's all about what he did to get to us. He paid a price that nobody could pay. And he demonstrates his own love for us. That even in our sin, long before we've taken a bath or trying to clean ourselves up, motivated by love, he dies for us. There's a real hero in this story. There's at least two. And it's not Elijah. <laughs> He's, he barely even makes an appearance in this story, right? He doesn't even do anything. He's sitting back at home with his feet up in his lazy boy or something. I don't know. Sends his servant. It's like, hey, just go tell him to do this, right? No, it's, it's a lot bigger. I'm not trying to discredit Elijah in, in this. But I really feel like the, the, the hero of this story, at least one of them, is this unnamed slave girl. I want, you, I want you to think about this. This girl has literally been kidnapped, taken from her homeland, forcefully enslaved. <laughs> Prisoner of war, right? I, I don't know how, how you really want to break this down. Maybe, and I, I just want to say this for, to, to be the devil's advocate here or something like that in, in this sense, maybe it was better in Syria for her than it was in Israel. I don't know. But the reality of it is, I don't know a lot of people that like to be stripped from their homeland, that like to be enslaved, that like to be uh, forcefully uh, forced into service here. And this girl, in spite of her circumstance, in spite of the fact that she's been ripped from her culture and her faith and her, uh, everything that she would know and put into a less than ideal situation, it demonstrates her genuine compassion and faith when she begins to say, hey, why doesn't my master go and see the prophet in Samaria? She finds herself in a situation she didn't want to be in, one that God certainly didn't cause, but he used, right, for his glory. And I wrote this down. You may find yourself in a different place of life than you thought you'd be right now. 
I think actually most times, if I, like looking back on my life right now, if I would have went back 15 years ago, this is not where I thought I'd be, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. <laughs> but you may be in less than ideal circumstances. You may be in a less than ideal situation, friends. <laughs> but I would encourage you to look at it through the, live, the lens of heaven's potential and not just the circumstances as they are. I believe this, that... Uh, she didn't let her circumstances mask the goodness of God. And I pray that we would all have a mentality like this young lady, that we would point people towards the Lord, even when things aren't perfect for us in our life right then. I think Naaman would have probably been like a response. I don't think it would have been too far out of the question for him to say, why would you tell me to go worship your God and do this? It's not really going so well for you. <laughs> but she was faithful to share even when things weren't perfect her willingness to simply speak out was the catalyst for this entire story of miraculous healing and so I want to I challenge somebody here today things might not be perfect and you're using that as an excuse to give glory to the Lord or to, to withhold glory from the Lord things might not be perfect for you right now and things might not be going the way that you think they should but I want to challenge you and encourage you to be faithful to speak up when the Lord asks you to speak because it might just be the catalyst for somebody else's healing so I love this unnamed slave girl we don't even get her name but I think she's pretty rad but right Naaman's encounter doesn't exactly go as planned he shows up first to the king. The king sends him away. He finally does show up to the prophet. He finally does show up to Elijah. I'm going to read verses 9 through 12 one more time. It says, Then Naaman went, to it, went with his horses and chariot and stood at the door of Elijah's house. And Elijah sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Far Par, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters in Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. He has this mentality. Now, obviously, he's a pretty high up dude uh, from Syria. I think it would have been customary for him after traveling all this way for Elijah to answer his door and come out and talk with him. But none of that happens because I think what was really happening here in the story of Naaman, as much so as he was about healing his leprosy, I think it was equally as important, if not more so, about healing his pride. Because Naaman shows up at the door expecting some kind of fanfare, expecting the man of God to open up the door and, and call upon the Lord like Elijah would when he called upon uh, the Lord on, the, on Mount Carmel in this wild demonstration of God's power and, and his fire. And that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of what's going on in Naaman's mind. Yeah, it's going to be a big spectacle. It's going to go down in the history books. Maybe something like that. Let's see this happen. I've traveled a long way. I've brought all the money. I've brought all the goods. Let's see this happen. And instead of the man of God coming out and waving his hand over him, 
calling down fire from heaven. He sends out his servant, sends out his secretary, if you will. Hey, go wash in the Jordan. Peace. And he's like, what? <laughs> he's angry. You know, we're going to do baptisms. Uh, we might do some today. Who knows what God wants to do? But our baptism, uh, we have a pump that circulates the water and it heats it. And it sends off little debris out of the, the pump. And it, no matter how hard we try to get it clean, it, every time we clean it. We clean it before every baptism. We scrub it. And this like flake stuff comes out into the baptism. And it's like the water looks a little questionable. It's clean. But it looks questionable. It's nothing like the Jordan River. I've seen pictures of the Jordan River. You guys have actually seen the Jordan River. And it's kind of gross, right? <laughs> so so, so uh, Naaman here is probably right in thinking the far par. I, I've, I don't have a good definition, but probably a nicer river than the Jordan River. If we're being honest, there are cleaner rivers than the Jordan River. We're pretty blessed with a pretty clean river here. Um, he, he's sitting here thinking... There's better ways to go about this. This is too simple. This is too easy. Because Naaman had a preconceived idea of how God needed to move. And it almost cost him his miracle. And my challenge to us is that we wouldn't box God in into what he wants to do. Because here we see him almost miss out on what God wanted to do because he expected it to look like something else that he had heard God done had heard that God had done. And I don't know how many people have missed out on what God is actively doing because they've tried to box him in to what he had done before. Now, I'm get, I get God is not going to change his character and he's not going to change his nature. But the fact is that when God is moving, it's not our responsibility to tell him what he can and cannot do. If he wants to save people snowboarding, let's see him do that right? If he, wants to, if he wants to fill people in because, you know, we've got a big church, whatever he wants to do, I want to say yes to it. If it's out of the box, if it's untraditional, let's say yes to it. I don't want to box God into simply moving in the manner and the, in the dimension of what I say is appropriate and not. Hear me, I'm all about saying yes, we got to stay true to the scriptures and we got to make sure that what we're doing is biblical. But outside of that, let's let God have his way. It could look like maybe not doing church on Sunday, but at a different time. Who knows? I'm not saying that. Don't take that. Like, oh, Nate's canceling Sunday morning service. I'm out of here. That's not what I'm saying. If God wants to say that, we'll figure it out. Right? Okay. Guys, we have to guard ourselves from taking offense at how God is moving in our lives. Just like the man could have been offended at Jesus for spitting on him. Naaman obviously was offended that the man of God wouldn't come out and meet with him. He was offended at how simple of a task that was given before him. Could God have healed Naaman uh, just miraculously? Could Elijah have walked out of the house and just waved his hand and healed him? I have no doubt that that could have happened that way. But I said this already. I believe that there was a bigger problem that God wanted to deal with. Over Naaman's leprosy, it was dealing with his pride. Because if leprosy didn't kill him, his pride would have been his downfall. The real miracle extends beyond Naaman's physical condition and extends to his heart. His experience in humility leads him to receiving his miracle. 
And it all transpires because of another unnamed slave, other unnamed servant, who shows up and says, dude, you acting a fool. If he would have asked you to do this great grand thing, uh, wouldn't you have done it? If he would have asked you to sacrifice a hundred or a thousand bulls, wouldn't you have done it? If he would have asked you to climb to the top of a mountain, wouldn't you have done it? No, but he told you this simple thing. Just go and wash. Why are you being an idiot, Naaman? I think, he's, I think his, his, his servant here is speaking up because he sees just the, the foolishness of everything that's going on. He says, dude, you are going to die. What do you have to lose? We've come all this way. Why would you turn back now? What's it going to cost you just to go dip in the water? Just do what he says. You've literally got nothing to lose. You're going to die. And not just die, it's going to be a painful, miserable death. Just, just do it, man. Just get in the water. At least that's how, if I was... If I was his servant, that's what I would have been saying. <laughs> just, just, just do it. There's nothing your money, your notoriety, your success can do for you, Naaman. Why not? What do you got to lose? So Naaman does it. He probably felt pretty stupid. Dipping down once, nothing happens. Twice, nothing happens. Three times, nothing happens. Okay, I told you this was stupid. But he commits himself to the process. He does it as the word of the Lord came from the prophet Elijah for him to do. Dip seven times. He comes up, those leprous spots are gone, and he recognizes there's no other God. There's no other God. There's no other medicine, there's no other religion, there's no other person that could do for me what Jesus just did. Man, Lucas, can I, can I, can I brag on you for a second? I don't know if you remember saying this, but we were hanging out, we were having lunch, we were eating curry like three weeks ago, something like that. But you were talking about how, man, you've explored all these other things and you've, you've talked about, you know, exploring every book that you've encountered on, on Buddhism and meditation and Eastern religion and things that have some good stuff in it. But at the end of the day, man, you said it left you emptier than when you started and it all keeps bringing you back to Jesus, man. And what I love here is that Naaman has this realization that it, it doesn't stop, right? <laughs> it, it, there, there's, he has this realization that there's, there's, a, that there's no other God except for the one in Israel. And it happens because he's seen and he experiences God actually moving in his life. That's my prayer for people, that they would experience this same kind of thing. But for so many of us, the gospel is too simple. It's too easy. Amen. 
Naaman had no claim to what God did. He didn't have to climb a mountain. He didn't have to get some kind of golden goose egg. Didn't have to go on some kind of adventure or a quest. Just had to wash. <laughs> he had to go take a dip in the water. And I think sometimes we take a step back from saying yes to Jesus because it seems too easy. Many of us want to clean ourselves up. We want to have some kind of skin in the game, if you will. We want to make sure that we're doing okay. We, we, we've got to have some kind of part to play. It, it's got to be more difficult than this. Because this doesn't make sense. This is too easy. This is too simple. I feel like there has to be something for us to do in order to receive it. We have to clean ourselves up. We've got to have some kind of part to play. But the beauty of it is, is that that's what the gospel is. It's not about us cleaning ourselves up. It's not about us earning it. It's not about us doing it. It's about what he did for us. And I'm reminded of the story in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas get thrown in prison. They're singing. They're worshiping God. And an earthquake comes in, sets all the prisoners free. And so the jailer is about to kill himself. He's got his sword drawn. He realizes, this is the end. There's no hope for me. I'm about to kill myself. Paul says, stop. We're all here. Miraculous thing. And he falls on his knees and he begins to, he says, uh, in Acts chapter 16, verse 30, he says, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? What, what, what must I do? And Paul says, you need to go on this quest and you need to go on this journey. You need to get this golden egg. You need to climb this mountain. You need to prove yourself. You need to make sure you haven't cussed, you haven't smoked, you haven't dated, you haven't done any of this stuff, and then come back to me. No. No. You know what he says? It's on the screen. It says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then Paul has the audacity because he's full of faith. He says, because you're going to get saved, your whole household is going to get saved. Simple. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's simple. Sometimes the simple things are the hardest for us to do. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them in the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all of his family were baptized. Then they brought him into his house. He set food before them and he rejoiced having believed in God with all of his household. Following Jesus is the hardest thing you'll ever do. It's difficult. But 
saying yes to Jesus is so simple. When we say yes to Jesus, he comes alongside you. And that impossible, difficult thing of following him becomes somehow easy because the Holy Spirit fills you and comes alongside as a helper. So I'm not trying to paint the picture that it's just a cakewalk when we follow Jesus. Life is still life. Sin is still existent. We live in a fallen, broken world. So don't, what I'm saying here is don't just sign up to say yes to Jesus. Follow Jesus because life is hard and you just want it to become easy. Jesus actually promises the opposite of that. He says, in this world, you will face trial and tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. But to be saved, to be with Jesus is so easy. He says, believe the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. I got to get a different microphone, Adam. <laughs> Jesus. Good. Belief is more than just this kind of wishful thinking. I think sometimes we boil it down to that. I think belief requires follow through and action. Right, I can place my faith in something, but to really know that I've placed my faith in it, it's got to be tested, right? You know, I can say, I think that bridge will hold me, but if I really believe that that bridge will hold me, I'll walk across it. Does that make sense? And I think that that's what we're invited to with Jesus. My question for you guys today, and I, I don't know everybody's background, I don't know everybody's thought process, whether you've been following Jesus for 60 years, if you don't really know what you think about this Jesus guy. My question is, what do you have to lose? Why not give him everything? Why not give him your heart? Why not give him a shot? I'm confident that there's nothing that you can do for your life that'll make it turn out better, that'll make it easier, that'll make things work together in your own strength. But surrender to the Lord, he makes beautiful things out of broken messes. I'm a testimony to that. And I'm, I'm grateful for what he's done in my life. I don't know. I want to give the opportunity today. I don't know everybody's story, but maybe there's somebody here today. You don't know Jesus. You've not made him the Lord and Savior of your life. You're saying, you're asking a similar question. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to have this relationship with God? If that's you, um, 
I don't do the whole every eye closed, head bowed thing. But if you're saying, you know what, I want to place my trust and believe in Jesus, if that's you today, I'd invite you to raise a hand, and we want to pray with you. We're not going to do anything weird. But if that's you, I'd invite you to raise a hand this morning. If there's anybody here, I want to give that opportunity. Don't want to make it a weird, drawn-out thing, but I just I want to give opportunity for that today. Maybe everybody here has trusted in Jesus, and you say that you believe in him. I'm stoked about that. If you're not ready for that right now and you want to talk to me, I, I'd love to talk to you about that. One of the cool things, though, that I love about Acts chapter 16 and almost the entirety of the book of Acts is that uh, immediately after <laughs> they get saved, immediately after they believe, their whole household is baptized. We've been making a big deal about baptism because what it does, it says, I identify that Jesus is my Savior. It's this public declaration of identifying with Christ in his death and his burial and his resurrection. And it's this public demonstration, it's instruction from the Lord that he instructs us to do. And so we've been announcing it, we've been making it known. I felt like the Lord told me just to leave the baptism filled. So that's what I did. <laughs> and if there's anybody that would like to be baptized, we'd love to do that. We don't have to do it today. If somebody wants to get baptized today, we'll do it. We'll go. You probably don't have changes of clothes or anything like that, but we figure that out. But if you want to be baptized, it's going to stay here. It's going to be here next week. We'll do it. We'll make a big deal about it. We'll celebrate all that God's doing. I just want you to talk to me about it. I'm not going to pressure you or ask you to do something that you're not ready, or that the Lord hasn't, uh, you know, something that I'm not going to pressure you to do something that you're not ready to do but I will allow the instruction of the Lord to pressure you to do it <laughs> because there is, there is instruction from the Lord. Peter, the last time in Acts, when he first preaches, he says, repent and be baptized when they ask what you should do. And so I encourage you guys, don't, uh, don't sleep on it if you've not been baptized. Um, not that it's a magical ceremony or something like that, but it's a big deal. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.